All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views, and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone, welcome back to another roundup edition of Bell Curve. We got Michaels 1 and 2, Vance, and Yano. Fellas. In a minute. Full squad. All right, let's talk about, um, let's just let's just start with Bitcoin. And there, there are a whole bunch of different uh, angles that we could go with this week. But I think the, the big story that we got this week kicked off with was actually a bit of a false start on a story, which was Cointelegraph <laughs> tweeting out that a spot Bitcoin ETF had been approved or the iShare spot Bitcoin ETF had been approved. Uh, the market started to move immediately. Uh, Bitcoin ran up about 10% in the span of 20, 30 minutes. Um, then people started to ask for sources. The two Bloomberg analysts over at, uh, the two ETF analysts over at Bloomberg, James Seifert and Eric Balkunas, start, first responded positively and said, hey, what about the source here? Then Cointelegraph added reportedly to their own tweet, but they were the ones who broke the story. And then it very quickly, I think the, I haven't even looked into how this ended up happening, but it was basically a, a telegram chat that someone just saw that it was like a shit post in a telegram chat that I guess no one fact check and it got tweeted out across the main channel. This is the dissemination of media at its finest. It was a shit post in a telegram chat. Cointelegraph picks up on it. Cointelegraph writes an article I think it was either Barron's or Reuters saw that they posted about it. That feeds into the Bloomberg terminal, goes out over the Bloomberg terminal. Bitcoin ETF people at Bloomberg, or excuse me, ETF people at Bloomberg start tweeting about it. Boom, off to the races. Bitcoin pumps, uh, shorts get liquidated. It's also funny because like the ensuing journalist beef, like journalist beef is very serious. Like there's a code of ethics. You're supposed to do things a certain way. There's a supply chain, like you were saying, you know, people were pissed. Like, you know, as they, as they should be. Then there was some sort of like sort of half-hearted explanation afterwards. And then there was also some like panel interview where it was basically blamed on social media and the need to move fast and hyper competitive news environment. And it was uh, it, it, too much apologizing. Um, I think they just have to be better. It was an interesting week for media, actually. Not I know this isn't what we wanted to talk about, but Decrypt also rescinded a story. Uh, this week and then the new york times like changed their headlines a couple times related to israel and hamas and stuff um it did get me thinking about the like 2017 blockchain use case that didn't en end up happening like there's you know there's the there's the blockchain use cases that go to die like supply chain on the blockchain healthcare blockchain putting media on the blockchain there's definitely still a market for that Community or a need for it at least thing that like yeah. i trust unilaterally and, and i think that's like you know a hopeful version of what media looks like in in 10 years but i think for now we're, we're stuck with coin telegraph and, and the cartoons and all of it but uh the, the 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 funny part is one of the things that i always find fascinating you know one of the the most accurate and timely news sources for any sort of like up-to-date current events but also up-to-date you know events is wikipedia Every single time, you know, whoever wins a Super Bowl, whoever wins a game, whoever, you know, someone breaks up with someone like they are on it every single time within like 15 minutes. It's crazy. How do they do that? I would actually like I was even thinking Cause there's because there's, there's, there's hundreds of millions of people who contribute to it. And then they I, I don't know if there's hundreds of millions, but there's definitely a ton of people. And there's people who are just like really deeply ensconced within the community. And 
I, I don't know, like I've actually talked to a couple of Wikipedia editors and there's like a whole hierarchy to it. If you want to be editing something that has a certain number of page views, you have to be right, editing. Here's the number 120,000 editors in the last 30 days. Now we're really going down a, a rabbit hole here. But have you heard this story about this Chinese woman who spent years just editing fake stuff? Spent like a full decade. You know, the way that it works is when you actually edit Wikipedia, you build up something like a credibility score. That's like, oh, yeah, this person has been editing for a long time. It's verified by the community that these things are actually right. So she actually spent. It was like a decade or something like that, creating small edits that were accurate to build up her score and then like, like falsifying all of this information that went back, you know, that, uh, hundreds and thousands of years uh, in Russia. No more Wikipedia rattles. Let's talk about the ETF. Yeah, let's talk about the, the, the I guess the one interesting thing to point out other than the, uh, the journalist malpractice was the price action of Bitcoin post the ETF. Uh, like false start announcement. And so basically, if you're following along on video here, it did run up um, to just over $30,000. It retraced some of that move, but not all of it. And actually post this sort of false start back on um, back earlier this week, the price action has been sort of bullish and um, actually running up. It's just under 29,000 at the time of recording. And, you know, I, I'm this is like outside of my area of expertise, but if I had to summarize the the general explanation for this, it would be something like people were surprised that the market reacted as strongly as quickly to an, a headline that was pretty false. So the thinking now is actually if a spot Bitcoin ETF does get approved and that's looking pretty likely by February, then the market probably is going to move. And judging by how people reacted, there are some folks that are off sides Hence, it's probably a good well, thing. To be. I, I think the bigger thing to note on this graph is not necessarily what happened, um, you know, in that morning run up, uh, <clears throat> but what happened on the 16th when there wasn't any appeal from the SEC. To your point, I think that's kind of the big moment over the last week. The SEC decided not to appeal and bank, and I'm not exactly sure what the details mean <clears throat> uh, per se, but... Now, I think we have seven days basically until tomorrow uh, to see what the final ruling is or, or see what the final decision is from the judge. And then it's kind of a question as to where we go from there. And, you know, to your point, Mike, uh, I think January 10th is the date or the arc, uh, the next decision deadline for arc. And then 14th is BlackRock. I mean, they're all they're all kind of lined up for mid January. Um, but it seems like, you know, because they're not going to appeal, um, you know, something will happen in that period of time and it could happen sooner who knows but uh, yeah i think there's there's positive sentiment on on the etf yeah in, in addition to that maybe this was also pre you know, unrelated to this etf announcement but you know you do have a couple of the sort of blessed folks from macro or tradfi this happened last week we talked about it a little bit um the paul tudor jones came out saying that he likes what he calls the barbarous relics being gold and Bitcoin. This week, you had Larry Fink going on CNBC and talking about crypto being a, a flight quality asset, um, some sort of geopolitical hedge, which is, I mean, uh, Vance, I saw you tweeted out about this. I mean, I had to like do a double take watching that. I mean, that's a, that's a guy who's very serious, uh, understands the impacts of his words, you know, I feel like that's significant and there could be a, 
it maybe a changing of the tides is too too much too soon but i think it is important for tradfi buyers who we want to unlock here they need people that they respect and look up to essentially blessing this stuff so feel significant but curious to get your guys take yeah i think um on 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 one hand like the expectations are so high for this thing that you know almost anything will be viewed as like a disappointment other than like tens of billions of dollars on the other hand you have larry fink who not only is positive now but has called it a index of money laundering in the past uh where like you know if you make it 180 turn like that you gotta you gotta come with more than just like bitcoin's great like you have to call your friends you have to tell them about it you have to like you're putting your reputation on the line and you know, your reputation being preserved is some function of like the inflows, not maybe of the first day, but the first month, the first year, like, I, I think that's kind of like where the rubber meets the road. And they have a ton of salespeople and a ton of distribution. And this is not going to be the last ETF either. And so like, you know, there, there was a good economist profile on Larry Fink about how he went, you know, head over heels into ESG. And he's kind of like a guy that has historically been very good at like reading the temperature of the room, which direction the wind is blowing, which assets are, are likely to be hot next. And ESG, like for all the shit it gets, it was the hottest investment trend for almost, you know, 10 years. And so like, you know, you go from that to being on Fox News and talking about Bitcoin. Um, it's just like a huge shift. And so I think this is really the Super Bowl. You know, it's $7 trillion of registered investment advisor assets. If you get, you know, a couple percent of that. That's extremely, extremely meaningful, you know, and if you think about how a bull market can come about, there's probably two paths. One is, you know, institutionally led, kind of like what we're seeing right now. Um, and that's where we say, you know, we have regulatory clarity. We've cleaned up the space. You know, BlackRock has the biggest ETF, like it's blessed. You can put it in your 401k, et cetera. The other path is like we do a grassroots, um, like we build a game, you know, we scale DeFi, that type of stuff. And I think, you know, the latter is happening, but just like the institutional side is happening first. And so that's what the run is going to be shaped by. It's going to be like the Larry Fink cycle, you know, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't matter. But like, it is about Wall Street getting their fill, getting a restart basically on crypto from like three years ago prices against the backdrop of, you know, frankly, gold ripping. And gold is like Bitcoin, you know, the deficits, the narratives around, you know, bills, yeah, or you know, debt not being bought, interest rates going higher just because supply overwhelms demand. Like it is a very constructive narrative for him to pivot into. And frankly, it just seems smart. So I think it's cool. It's great for the space. I would tend to agree with you there. Um, what do you think about, I mean, there's been, I can get the chart up here in a second, but I feel like Twitter loves to to focus quite a bit on ETH BTC as a ratio as just sort of a relative, I, like, I don't know how you guys feel about it. I've, I've never viewed it as super, super important. But it has been in a downtrend um, for a little while. I mean, I'd be curious, like, how you guys think about the concept of the ETH Bitcoin ratio, whether or not it factors into your process in any way at all, or I don't know. How do you think? I feel like that? some people make the ETH BTC ratio like their whole personality, basically, and it's like important not to do that. Yeah. Um, and if you think about it, it's pretty classic, like beginning of bull run btc dominance runs you know someone like a sailor steps up and says like this is actually gold for real this time you get that drive down in in alts and like if you look at alts like a lot of them are making there's a few they're doing well but like a lot of them are making like lower lows and like you're searching for like what is actually deep value there and so there is like this rhythm to all of this where it's like 
Bitcoin goes you know, up because like it's digital gold. It has no fundamentals. It doesn't need to. Then you have progress on the app layer. And the reason why we're positive and hold ETH is because it's like Bitcoin, you're just buying and you're kind of like, you know, you're along for the ride. You hope it happens. And I, and I, and you know, like the digital gold comparisons are apt for ETH. Like I'm, I'm more bullish. And I think this is probably contrarian on like the long-term fee market of what happens on chain. And mostly just because like real world assets and tokenizing treasuries, like those are things that you can stick in an AMM. You can leave a little bit on the table in terms of MEV or, you know, yield for people to capture in TradFi, but like that's like a system that will produce a ton of fees that is relatively price insensitive to the gas costs. They just need nuclear grade censorship resistance. And so like that'll play out probably next year. I think that'll be kind of be the defining trend of like what happens on ETH. Like when stablecoins hit ETH in the last cycle, people are like, wow, you've actually built something useful, like a use case. Now it's like, okay, if we can bring enough T-bills on chain and maybe t- 10 billion is enough, maybe it's like 50 or 100, like you kind of have to start paying attention and you'll have that, you'll have the spikes in gas fees, but like I'm bullish on what we're building. It's much more different than like having this like bullish on like, you know, almost like bullish gold view that comes with Bitcoin. The only thing I'd add to that, totally agree with everything. Um, I think there is also going to be the same kind of a rising tide floats all boats perspective with ETH as well. When Bitcoin gets the attention that, you know, I think it will. Um, ETH has a futures ETF already. There's already been two filings that are are for ETH spot ETFs. I think you're going to start to look at there's sort of the digital gold narrative and then there's maybe like the digital oil. And I know that that's probably a, a narrative that hasn't been used in a couple of years. But I think you'll start to see a lot of interest from investors looking at ETH as sort of the internet oil that's powering these different applications, that's powering these different ecosystems, real world assets on chain, real yield, driving value to applications. And yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely a divergence uh, with the chart that we're looking at right now. Um, and ETH BTC is, is down. But um, I, I, historically, every single bull market has moved the same way. Uh, which is beef moves BTC moves first, ETH yeah. moves second, and right. then you know all the application protocol tokens move after that. That's what I was so, gonna. The point that I was gonna make by putting these two charts together, it's not like a dunk on anything. It's just I feel like this is more indicative of where we are in the cycle, which is typically around this far into a a bear market. Bitcoin dominance tends to go on a run. The trend of Bitcoin dominance over time is lower and lower and lower as more stuff gets built outside of Bitcoin. But I don't know. I feel like this is it's I feel like it's that's why I think ETH Bitcoin is kind of an interesting ratio to pay attention to. For me, it just tells you where you are in the cycle, but it it is less. I don't know. It's not people like to say, like, this is the future of these two assets. And I I, I, that's not the way that I I mean, roll roll it back all the way. You don't you don't have to. It's a long chart, but roll it all back to uh, 2019. You know, I had friends that we were looking at making investments in protocol tokens that did exceedingly well. And, you know, their their narrative was, eh, I'd rather just hold Bitcoin and not invest in, in one of those assets. You know, some of those assets did way better than Bitcoin. The other asset that did really well over that period of time and much better than Bitcoin was ETH because ETH was trading at about 200 bucks at that point. Um, <clears throat> so I, I think there is an element of, you know, history definitely gives us some direction in terms of, you know, how this stuff will play out. Um, and it's playing out the same way that it did in 2018, 2019, and 2020. People also just forget how quickly the narrative turns, right? Bitcoin ETF gets approved. Bitcoin's off to the races. For one month, people will be focused on Bitcoin. One month later, 
the question becomes what's next. And then people start talking about an ETH ETF. And then people start looking at some of the application and uh, uh, in, in different protocols that are off to the races and getting users again because the price is going back up. And uh, Bitcoin leads, but but the attention moves very quickly. And, and it's really sensible when you think about it as to why that's the case. It's because, you know, think about what it's like when you're sitting around an investment committee or, or hypothetical investment committee and you're saying, hey, we're going to go put some capital into, into Bitcoin. You know, we're going to try this crypto thing. I know it's gotten, you know, fleeced. You had all the fraud, you know, this time around, it's going to be different. But if you can convince people to put money into a Bitcoin ETF, let's say, then that works. Then the question becomes, okay, maybe we should up our allocation. Maybe this thing actually has legs this time around. And you start to trickle down the effects of, okay, what's next? What's working? Flight to quality, you know, narrative is going to be, and, and by the way, Larry Fink didn't say Bitcoin on that interview. Like he said crypto. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which is very different. <clears throat> I think there's going to be, it's not just going to be Bitcoin that, that definitely so rides. La wave. Last thing, like on this, like if you take the 50,000 foot view and you think that digital money is important and it's going to be a concept that stands the test of time, like I, I personally do, you know, unsurprising, but I think the world is also kind of go, heading in a direction where that concept is more relevant. The question is like, can you create an effective self-sustaining, can you, can you create effective self-sustaining internet money? Um, and like, I was, you know, just thinking about Bitcoin, it's like, man, like, you know, the Bitcoin future happens and like, I guess it is digital gold, but like, it also has no fees. And like in the near term and the 10 year perspective, probably that doesn't matter, but like long, long term, like, it's like, what is the more efficient, sustainable money? Is it something that's proof of stake that burns some of the fees and that has endogenous fee markets from DA and uh, uh, settlement? Or is it something that's proof of work, you know, powered by electricity? Like, I think you construct, you can construct arguments for both. One argument for Bitcoin is that, you know, energy prices are going to go to zero. Like may, may, maybe, but it seems like energy prices are going to go higher. And so wh what are the, like the bullish things that ETH has going for it? it's an extremely lightweight internet money that has a lot of users that people use in different transactions. And that is, you know, gaining a monetary premium across chains. Like I, I still think about that over the fullness of time. Um, and ordinals are cool and lightning is cool, but like it, it just doesn't add up economically. So that that's kind of the last thing that I have to say about it. Let's go to another story that's uh, related to the ETF, which is um, the new, so the New York AG this week filed a claim against um, a couple companies where they, they argued that, one Gemini misrepresented its earned product. Um, they said that the the uh, they said that Gemini marketed their earned product as liquid and safe, uh, and that it was not. Um, but even more powerful is they said that Genesis, DCG, and they kind of called out two folks in particular, Barry Silbert and Michael Morrow, quote, disguised 1.1 billion in losses through a months long campaign of misstatements, omissions, and concealments. Um, would love to get your guys' take on this. It's uh, yeah. it's a big one. It's it's definitely <laughs> That's your big boy right there. <laughs> the uh, <laughs> is it civil or yeah? The, the uh, well said, well said. I think it's civil. Well, but but what they're asking for, which is probably the you know a, a huge blow, obviously, is that the people involved would not be able to sell securities in New York ever again. Turn in yeah. your license and you're done. Yeah, this is Barry, this is Barry giving it up. So the, I think one of the important things that <laughs> wasn't really tweeted about was 230. They specifically called out 230,000 investors. So this is not 
I think in like media terms, it's not a B2B case. This is a B2C case. They're they're talking about all, the 230,000 investors that got crushed from from Genesis and and then inherently Gemini. So the yeah, it's all via Gemini, but Genesis was the backer. Remember Genesis was the only party, the only counterparty to Gemini, Gemini earned so product. Let me pull up these look at look at these crazy stats. 50 billion I know this is so wild. Q4 2021 uh, market snapshot of Genesis's activity: fifty billion in loan originations, total active loans of twelve and a half billion, thirty-one billion of spot volume traded, and twenty-one billion of uh, notional derivatives traded. Just a, uh, I, I was saying this to Santi earlier today. Like I think people who were around in crypto in 2013 and 2014, remember Mt. Gox is like sitting at the middle of everything in crypto. But people who come into yep. crypto today is like, Mt. Gox is almost this mythological thing that like, you can't really put, it doesn't really, like you can't really like imagine it. For people who come into the industry now and forever after, Genesis will just be this like thing that like they never really felt. But for Genesis sat at the middle of everything in crypto. They sat at the center of everything. Any CeFi product that, had uh, that offered a, a yield, Babel or Gemini or, or Blockfire, any of these products, Genesis sat behind that. Um, yep. and, I mean, yeah. look at that. Like, so that those numbers fit with the FTX case too, right? It's like, you know, 13 billion lent by them, you know, another couple billion from Voyager, another couple billion from Celsius, another couple billion from Blockfi. There's probably 20 billion of aggregate credit created by these, you know, now bankrupt entities. Yeah, and the uh, I read a little bit of the Letitia James. Uh, she's the AG for New York. Charges against Barry and and Co. Uh, at one point, I think it was at this point, sixty percent of all loans were to Alameda. Right. You know, all of the loans through Gemini were to Alameda. They, uh, they lent them two point four billion. <laughs> between friends, you know, who knows. <laughs> But like it kind of it kind of punches a hole in the in the Gemini story that we're victims. It's like, are you victims or are you people that are not doing any due diligence and trying to just offshore that risk to somebody else? Seems seems more like the latter. And I think to tie it all together with the ETF, if you can't issue securities in New York, can you issue, you know, like a GB or a GBTC ETF on the New York Stock Exchange? So like th this, no. let's let's tie it all together. Gary Gensler interview, um, you know, he's saying like, it's not about the security. It's about the issuer. We're going to have to go issue by issuer. Well, he said it's about, right, it's, it's about, it's about like, both. you know, they're equally as important. And so GBTC getting a conversion, very different than a general spot ETF being approved. And I think the only way that you can say that the institutional phase of, of crypto has started is if BlackRock or a bigger guy has the biggest ETF. If it's still GBTC, I don't think that's enough of like a mission accomplished type moment. So I, I would expect the GBTC stuff to get more pushed out somehow. Do you, I don't understand the complex legal arrangements that the, the um, DCG empire had. I mean, is there a chance that this is a, this is a complaint against Genesis that GBTC and Grayscale would be firewalled from that and not impacted or you think no? Uh, it, it, it... <sighs> Because it so yes, there there is a chance. I, I don't understand exactly the separation. I know they're separate companies. DCG is the parent company. Genesis was one of the, the subsidiaries, along with Grayscale, who creates GBTC. Mm. They're just related entities. I I think we don't know. 
you would assume that there is no way that if this happens, uh, that you'd be able to convert, but it's something that we won't know for a long time and, and probably is independent of the conversion itself for now. Uh, I think the bigger point is, is this a reason to prevent an issuer? I mean, there's literally a charge, multiple charges. Is there a reason to prevent an issuer from you know being the first out of the gate? And I'm obviously not a lawyer. This feels like a reason. The argument that they're separate entities goes out the door when you look that when you when you see that Genesis had a one point one billion dollar loss and then DCG's given them one point one billion at a one at a one ten ten year one percent rate. Like that's that argument is nullified now. In, intuitively, yes, that makes sense, and that's exactly I'm sure what the what uh, the prosecutors will be arguing. I, I just don't know what you know the legal standards are for for piercing the corporate veil in that respect and saying these are all one entity. They, they were also forced to halt deposits like last week or the week before that, that was kind of like underreported, I thought. But my my first instinct was like, who is still there? <laughs> like, who is still trading on a bank, like, you know, theoretically bankrupt exchange? I, I honestly thought, I honestly thought that that was a, no, fake, that was a fake tweet. Yeah, I, I saw that too. I was just confused. Like how many times has Genesis been shut down at this point either? I, <laughs> I don't know. But l- let me ask you this. What do you think the implications are if GBTC can't convert? Like, what is the impact on inflows into the spot ETF? Because then you sort of have this trapped, how, I don't know how, how much AUM do they still have? Is it like 20, 30 billion, something like that in GBTC? It's a lot. Something like that. I mean, you would imagine, yeah, it's, it's sort of, I don't even know how to game that out really, because theoretically he would have converted that into an ETF. Now you're going to have that money just trapped there. Does that impact but, other ETFs at all, or is that just? Sorry, why? I mean, why is that trapped there? If, if assuming that it's still at a discount to net asset value, people won't want to redeem. Yeah, to yeah, but it's I been mean, at a discount for so long. Like people probably bought it at, and getting charged two percent a year. Yeah, why wouldn't you just get out if you bought it at a discount? You're probably up. Well, like, if, if you bought it at a discount, at I think if you owned. I think uh, probably a lot of people didn't buy it at a discount. I I don't know, but I bet a lot of people didn't. Um, a lot of people I, bought, I, bought at a premium, actually. And uh, I think the the fact of the matter is the people who are are getting sold this product or this hypothetical product from ARK and BlackRock, et cetera, et cetera, are not the people who put into the GBTC uh, fund. I think they're net new. So I, I don't know. I don't know if that has any effect whatsoever. Maybe it actually has the opposite effect, which is people will be more incentivized to move over faster. So maybe the redemptions of GBTC will happen if you know that conversion doesn't happen versus just sitting there as latent you know, ownership of a Bitcoin ETF versus the fund. And you're happy because A, the spread closed and B, you're not getting charged 2% anymore. Um, but if GBC doesn't get approved or converted, maybe that will actually flow into a new ETF faster. It's impossible to buy GBTC right now. Like you, like you literally can't get a broker to, to let you do it, especially on the retail level. So assume, assume everything is net new. Sorry. Why is, why is it difficult? I mean, it d- just like from the brokers we've talked to, it feels like there's been this like uh, de facto ban on offerings to clients. You know, it's like, it's. You have, you have to be sort right. of grandfathered in. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think most of the people probably don't even notice it's trading at a discount. Um, it's probably stuffed in their retirement account somewhere. Like that that would be my guess. I, I guess they do mm. run a lot of ads, but like to what end? Like you can't really access it. How would you look at the spot ETF as a 
catalyst. There are sort of two benefits from from my vantage point, which is you're theoretically opening Bitcoin up to a whole new level of buyers, um, depending on how how many people just haven't bought because they've been waiting for it. Um, or it's just sort of the idea that this is people would feel safer buying Bitcoin or crypto overall because it's a part of the US regulatory apparatus and there's a big issue like BlackRock. Like those are kind of, obviously those are related things, but I mean, is it the buy pressure that is the bullish thing here? That's the major part of the catalyst or is it just like, yeah, this is a legitimate asset now? I mean, uh, like I said, the expectations are super high. So I think mm. crypto Twitter is so, uh, you know, discerning that anything less than a billion dollars of inflows is probably going to be a disappointment. Um, and there's like also this, you know, redemption supply catalyst, which is like not immediately great. But the whole thing is, you know, the Winklevoss filed for this ETF like 13 or 11 years ago. Like this is what, but what the space has been building up to for like over a decade is the final institutionalization of at least one coin, which would lead to many more. And so I think it's just the beginning of that journey. And I think if, if gold and macro is cooperative, which could be a various range of scenarios, it could be a big recession hits and they start easing. It could be you know, some sort of other financial accident, it could be gold just starts ripping. Um, but I think, you know, the setup is is favorable. Like, you know, all the dovish talk from the uh, the Fed governors this week, it's clear that, you know, they're kind of spooked by the long-term bonds going going down and the yields going up. So it, it kind of feels like, you know, if it's going to be any time, it's probably going to be now. I don't think this would have mattered last year. Honestly, it would have been too much noise and not the right macro. You want to buy Bitcoin with rates going up and they're probably going to double. Like, no, no one would want to do that. Um, but I, I was thinking about this today. Like, you know, if, if you're like some guy sitting in an investment bank and you're making like eight or nine percent on your on your your cash because you're connected, like what price movement of Bitcoin gets gets your attention from 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 30K, you know, probably gets to 40K. And you're like, all right, I missed the first leg. I'm not going to miss the second. Like, like the, the burden is higher because the interest rates are higher, but like it, it is possible just because of the setup. The, the only thing I would add is the down the downside perspective here is that, I mean, as we saw with what happened, the, the ramp up to 30, the ramp back down, and then kind of the slow creep back in that chart is that this is going to be priced in by the time it happens. And there's going to be a kind of sell the news moment. Um, and I think, you know, I could see an argument where, People who wanted to buy Bitcoin, even if it's in their 401k, have been able to do that with Fidelity for a long time. People who wanted to buy Bitcoin not in a 401k have been able to do that with Coinbase for a long time. Like it, Maybe there isn't as much demand as we think there is, um, but the only way for us to figure that out is if it launches. Yep. So I was, what I was going to ask you guys is how would you gauge the overall sentiment out there? And what, what I'm kind of wondering is... I think it's I think it's a little bit mixed actually because there I think there are actually quietly a lot of people especially businesses in crypto it's been tough sledding for the last 18 18 months uh, going on 2 years and there are definitely a lot of companies out there that are just like hurting and they're like hey we need a return to the bull market and I think a lot of them are hoping more than anything else for an ETF or having or catalyst or whatever but I also think there's been a lot of 
emotional damage and scarring over the last like two years, which also tends to happen around the <laughs> last legs, you know, knock on wood of bear markets where, you know, we can't just believe obviously good catalysts. And I don't know, we've talked about it on this podcast, but it's kind of like, could we just be overthinking it? And like the having plus a BlackRock ETF is like, that's got to be good, right? I, I, I don't know. And I know Vance, you've been in New York a little bit talking with some more TradFi-esque sort of folks. Like, I'd be curious what the sentiment is around them, around crypto. I would guess it's rock bottom, but I mean. At least makes me pretty optimistic is, you know, crypto is like thoroughly off people's radar, uh, at least at the institutional, you know, size. And they're like, you know, call me when the ETF gets approved. But they're bullish on things that kind of look and feel like crypto or other high quality digital assets. Like they're all crowded into the same seven tech stocks. Uh, they all believe that growth story. Like that could be a corollary for something like ETH. You know, if you build something really impressive on it, they're all big, uh, they're all bullish on uh, on gold. You know, people think you know at least kind of in in the Wall Street communities that I've kind of uh, been a part of, you know, gold could double or triple just because central banks are buying it. Um, you know, people, it's like a very lame idea, but like, if you look at the gold chart, you want to pull the gold chart up the long-term one. And, you know, it's like, there's hundreds of years of price history or whatever, but it, it does look like, you know, it's the world's largest asset at 12 trillion. But if like, if anything, it looks like it's going to break out over a long-term time horizon, it's probably gold. Um, and so, you know, for them, it's like, do you want something that has a bit more alpha? It's a bit younger. Uh, you know, it's a bit more zeitgeisty. Um, you know, it's constantly online in a way gold is not like Bitcoin, you know, it's, it's right there. And so I can see kind of the early innings of, of people starting to construct a bullish thesis on crypto. Um, and, and, you know, the, the other thing that's kind of interesting about, uh, gold is the ETF corollaries, the spider gold trust launched in November, 2004. So just to the left of where this chart is and look what happened to the price. You know, like that, that's kind of where people's minds are going. And, and guess who was the chairman of the CFTC when the gold ETF got approved? It was, it was Gary Gensler. Um, and there was this same sort of dichotomy of like, he's trying to keep the ETF caged up. The price is being suppressed. The bankers are trying to get us. Um, and so there's enough corollaries. There's enough evidence. There's enough uh, of a lack of anything else to invest in also that kind of leads people towards crypto. And the Wall Street uh, crypto crowd, there's a lot of overlap of people who are just doing it nights and weekends. Um, that's been another thing that I've noticed. I think a good signal for like when the market is ready to rip is, and Mike, we talked about this, I remember over beers about a year ago, is when the market goes up 50 to 100% and nobody says a thing and nobody even notices. Yeah. And Bitcoin's the, Bitcoin itself is the best performing asset class of all of 2023, right? Large, large cap growth in the US is up like, 25, 30%, an index of commodities is up like 5, 10%. Bitcoin's up like 60, 65% on the year. Nobody said a thing. It doesn't feel like that. When has that ever happened? The top performing yeah, asset right. now has a Wall Street. Like right. you can build the narrative Legos. So at a, certain, at a certain point, you can't ignore it. And like the two catalysts is like, two cat, to, to go back to Mike's thing is like, you can't ignore it when the price goes up 100%, especially if you are a financial advisor. And we just had a... Matt Hogan and Hunter from Bitwise on the Empire yep. podcast with Santi. And um, uh, they laid out this stat that I didn't know, which is retail controls 20% of the wealth in the US. Uh, institutions control 40% of the wealth in the US. Financial advisors control the other 40% of wealth in the US. And right now it's really, really, really hard for financial advisors to recommend Bitcoin because you're not incentivized on it. 
right. so if you oh, if you recommend right. that yeah. your client buys Bitcoin, it yeah, like Michael, you're saying they can access Bitcoin in their Coinbase, sure. But if you're a financial advisor, you don't get paid on that. Totally. So what the Bitcoin ETF does is it allows financial advisors to recommend it to their clients, not because they haven't been able to in the past, but because now they can get paid on that. And that is a big catalyst, in my opinion. Totally agree with that. We were also uh, meeting with a couple of our LPs over the last few weeks and just asking them what the LP market is right now. And, you know, they're out funding, raising funds, <clears throat> obviously deploying into other funds. They said that there is a direct one-to-one or one correlation, correlation of one to how much money they raise for blockchain-specific funds with the price of crypto, the value of crypto, which is, you know, hilarious. But think about the psychology of that. It's people want to deploy into crypto funds or venture crypto funds when Bitcoin and ETH are ripping. And I, I think, you know, the wealth effect or sort of success or price action will get more price action. I, I think that that's also going to be a huge narrative that takes over. So how do you guys remember experiencing 2019? Like, what were, what was your mental state? Like, what do you think the industry, where was the industry at? Like, I, I remember it as this, like, barren wasteland of, like lost hopes and dreams at that. I mean, people were very, I think people were way more beaten down then than they are now. I'm starting to see people come out and say this is as bad as it was back then. I still don't think it, I still don't think it was. I'll give you an example. The, so like the, the alt communities that are, you know, like pick a coin. Uh, I'm not going to pick on any coin, but all the alts are down like 95 to 99%. And like, that's a, you go in those communities, some are building, some are having fun, but the vibes are like death march, terrible. Like when you're down that much, that just like mentally will do something to you. The last cycle, the, all, the, the majors were down that much. Bitcoin was, you know, peaked at 20K, then it went to 3K. You know, it's down 85%. Uh, you know, ETH went to 1400, then it was at 80. You know, that's down 95%. Like, the sentiment that was in the alts last time or on the alts this time was in the majors last time. So think about how desolate that was. And there was, and there was just nothing really either. I mean, there was like the beginnings of some alts that could be something, but let me provide a different perspective, a similar, but uh, from a different angle. Um, 2019, when everything blew up 2018, 2019, remember the chairman of the sec basically pushed us off as an industry and was like <laughs> too small too, too irrelevant to regulate. And that's kind of what happened. You know, we, we kind of blew up ourselves in this fringe corner of the internet and nobody really other than us noticed. Whereas now you've literally got the, you know, committee meeting after committee meeting on Capitol Hill, you've got, you know, draft bills that are working their way through the house. You've got the most popular business story in the world right now, maybe, you know, business story, maybe not total story in the world right now, which is a, which is a, you know, case against one of, you know, our, our former superstars. And now everybody knows about it. It's kind of, you know, negative in that respect, but the positive sentiment of that is that everybody knows about it. So when things come back, everyone will be like, okay, it's back. You know, they've cleansed themselves. I know about it. I know what it is. And the the market just gets to be ten times ten times larger. I'm so over the case. Well, I'm th- so over the SPF th- case. Just like a reality TV show. Like just it's it's. It I don't think anybody cares more than the reporters themselves. But look at th- <laughs> this is what happened. This was the price action for Bitcoin in 2019. 
which was like this oh. if you just if you just looked at this and you didn't know the the backdrop or the context of what we were just talking about you'd be like wow this is a really good year this you know bitcoin more than doubled and i'm just picking out bitcoin no, is not that year sucked that i can i can i can tell you every dot on that chart how i was feeling and it was not great yeah it was a brutal year but i'm just saying like if you looked at that chart in isolation you'd be like that looks like but you, but you look you look like a year, you look at and bitcoin that, and eth now and you're like they're like not that like from from their all time they're like not that far down like bitcoins was like 68 it's at like 30 basically you know eth was at 4900 it's at like 16 it's like that's not that's not trying to go from 80 to 1400 like 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 that like that is insane <laughs> like i remember joking about people at eth denver in like 2019 like eth to 1k it's like fuck i hope so it's it's just not that bad anymore. So I I think the one thing we're still looking for is like what does deep value and alts really look like? You know, how bad can it really get? Because there's just, you know, there's only twenty one million Bitcoin. Alts just have a lot of unlocking supply. Uh so that's more situation dependent. Like seeing blur price action has just been pretty wild to see it just drop like a stone. Um and that's like a well-regarded primitive backed by a well-known firm with well-known founders. Uh, some projects are on the tail end of those lockups. Some are frankly just starting like Aptos and SWE and all that stuff. Like those are like years long emission schedules. We're going to have to just sort that out at some point. One thing I'd love to, I'd, um, just outside of just market commentary, I'd love to get your guys take on the uni fee switch um, thing that happened this week, which was, this was not the fee switch that we'd been talking about, which was going to be actual fee switches on like V3 pools where the funds would flow to the DAO and theoretically accrue to the token. This was put into place by Uniswap Labs. And I'm sure most folks who are listening on this podcast know, but there there is a DAO entity which governs the protocol and the token. And then there's a labs entity, which is a much more traditional centralized company, which is funded by VCs. And they... Uh, and they are like a for-profit, much more traditional thing. And the, the overall relationship is that there's the Uniswap um, protocol, which is governed by the DAO and token. And then Uniswap Labs builds products on top of that, namely the front end and the wallet. So the distinction here is that this was a 15 basis point fee that got added on some tokens only on the Uniswap Labs created front ends. So I, I, frankly, I'm surprised that there was surprise here. The second that they raised money for Uniswap Labs, whatever that was, yeah. like six months ago, you, everybody should have known that this was coming. Like, you're not just going to throw money into a company because you expect them to be, you know, good stewards of the protocol. They're going to build products that are going to be able to make money. And that's the whole and business. Hopefully, case. that makes you money if you're a token investor. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think right. it is a travesty, just like the US, you know, rules and regulations around this stuff where you haven't been able to turn on the fee switch and people are just left there like holding the bag. I, I think it's like not dissimilar to like a GBTC or, you know, some other like eventual promise of value or redemption or something like that. But they have every right to charge a fee on the front end that they maintain and that they fight, you know, tooth and nail with regulators and all sorts of people for. So if you don't like it, just use a different front end. Keep in mind, I mean, the way that the, at least it seems that the regulations are trending, there will have to be a lot of things that Uniswap Labs and the front ends that they maintain in a centralized way, they'll have to do which is like KYC AML, they're going to have to maintain, you know, suspicious activity reports. They're like, they're, they're going to get regulated in a pretty deep way. And, and so I think, you know, that's an element here too, that people need to remember. 
um, you know, if you want to use the clean Apple supported interface to trade or, or to buy or swap tokens, it's going to, it's going to come with extra bells and whistles than just using a DeFi interface. Yeah. I think that's well said there, there were some, I saw some of the, the competitors to Uniswap try to dunk on the fee as if they weren't also charging fees just in a even less transparent way. So uh, you've got to give this to Uniswap and it was sort of an L for, I won't name any names, but yeah, there were a couple of other protocols that were like, Hey, we don't charge fees. Come over here. And then it was like, yeah, yeah those, do. those, those you, protocols, you which should not be named have internalized work. basically all of the fees. So uh, like, <laughs> yeah, I I, uh, I think we got to be affirming each other and building each other up, not trying to like piss on someone's parade when they're trying to build a sustainable business. That's that's poor form. Vance, you were sort of talking about. Um, I mean, do you think there's this there's the opportunity for this to actually be the first real institutional cycle for crypto? And I don't know. One thing that I was thinking about, uh, with the benefit of hindsight is a, a significant moment for stable coins in the last cycle, which was also in the in the doldrums, was Libra coming out and saying, or Facebook coming out and saying, we're going to build a stable coin. And, you know, it obviously wasn't 100% because of Libra, which ended up falling apart. But that did catalyze this insane bull market in stables. And I do wonder, I do wonder if there could be some similar effect here I don't want to overstate it because it's one CNBC interview and I know I'm biased and I want this to be the case, but we've never had anyone like Larry Fink come out and say, you know, crypto is a flight to quality safe haven type asset. There's even a big difference between Paul Tudor Jones saying something like this and Larry Fink because Paul Tudor Jones, yeah, he controls money, but it's really mostly his money and he's a hedge fund guy and he'll get in and out of trades like Larry Fink is at the very top of the world of institutional finance. He, through BlackRock, controls, I don't even know what it is, eight or nine. Largest asset manager in the world. Yeah, largest asset manager in the world. I don't know. I mean, this, this could be the first cycle where we get real institutional money that isn't just kind of Web2 VCs taking big punts <laughs> or, you know, like not knowing what they're doing or um, I don't know. Like last cycle was kind of institutional, but kind of not really at the same time. So just to tie it all together, like a lot of the people who use Genesis in, you know, last few years were based in New York. Like it was known as like the New York City, like Wall Street style investment bank. And a lot of those people are stuck or know people who are. And so that only leads them to kind of be more and more like this is a scam. And that's just like a group of people we can't afford to isolate. They literally control all the money. Just like not a good idea. So whether you like or don't like Larry Fink, having him as the cheerleader, as the world's largest asset manager, mobilizing his sales force, telling his friends, um, you know, is it going to be a disappointment on day one? Depends on where expectations are. And if Bitcoin rips like 30% higher, of course, it probably has that chance. But it's about the first year uh, or the first few years and also what the macro backdrop is doing. And I think it was like we had this COVID sugar high. All the arguments Sailor was making at that point in time we're like, this could happen. We, we hadn't experienced any of the inflation when he started buying in late 2020. We had an idea that it might happen, but now it's like all those chickens have come home to roost and it's, it's kind of chaotic feeling. And Bitcoin and ETH and other currencies that are sustainable are probably gonna do you know, decently well if there's institutional adoption. So I think it's the beginning of you know, a journey that has taken 10 years to start when the Winklevoss filed this. Um, and it's, yeah, I, like, this is kind of what you play for. 
as an asset manager? The the number one thing that I would say is holding back the industry, and I know we've talked about this ad nauseum before, is lack of regulatory clarity. And we're not going to get it anytime soon. Like it's not going to happen in the next three months. But the first thing that will happen, it seems like, is a Bitcoin spot ETF, which is in itself sort of regulatory clarity on one aspect, a major aspect of this industry. And I think that there are a lot of people that are waiting on the sidelines for that. Um, and, you know, hopefully that's just uh, the start of the process of getting more pro crypto regulations done. But it'll trickle down just like we've seen with, you know, the the wealth effect flowing through through the market ecosystem. Yep. One thing just to note as well on your point, Vance, about it not being about immediately the inflows versus the year, the, on the, the at least the last halving, the price didn't immediately skyrocket in May when the halving occurred. It took a couple of months until September, October, uh, from my memory, for the price to start running up. And so just that, just a maybe a, a point about expectations going into the halving, obviously the spot ETF and if and when that approves might would obviously impact that. But the other thing that I would say about the the regulatory point is that I've heard Matt Levine and Jim Chanos talk about this as a framework, and I think it's relatively true. When price is going up, there's not much demand out there in the public to regulate things. And it's like, oh, well, maybe this stuff is actually really useful and we should adopt it and do all these things. And then when the price goes down, people start looking for blood and someone to blame. And that's when the SEC and other regulatory bodies are at kind of peak public interest for regulating, which is what we've been seeing for the last year or so. So conversely, I think if, I don't know if it should work like this, but I sort of think it does in a sense, if the price of Bitcoin and ETH and crypto starts to go up, there might be more demand for positive regulation or at least less public interest in just getting out the torches and pitchforks against the space, which is what's happening right now. And the reason why is because what we're talking about is financial services. Right. The financial services, you know, uh, next to healthcare is the most regulated industry. Those are the most regulated industries in the United States. No one can put a dollar into some ecosystem if you work at, you know, a registered investment advisor, investment bank, et cetera, et cetera, unless it's something that is cleared by compliance. There's no way compliance clears things. Like, I, I understand the argument where, you know, you don't want regulation as an industry is growing. I, I think the caveat to that is you don't want regulation for your industry while the te technology is maturing, so long as you're not dealing with a regulated industry. But because we are, I think we need some regulations for people who are, you know, banking institutions, in, investment banks to be able to transact in stable coins. Like that, that would be just like a base case. Um, so I, I think, you know, positive regulation, but I also think, once again, ETF, positive sentiment, and then that leads to more positive regulation. So, uh, just on the regulation stuff. So it looks like Jim Jordan is not going to be the House Speaker, nor will Steve Scalise. And now it looks like they're thinking about elevating Patrick McHenry to be the, the temporary speaker until January. So he'll, right, you know, awesome, super hardworking, super honest guy. Um, like he's definitely one of the more moderate and reasonable politicians that I've ever met. Uh, and he's going to be the guy who's the you know temporary speaker of the house, and he has the ability to you know bring certain things up. And there's a lot of stuff that needs to pass by January. Like we got to give Israel aid, we got to give Ukraine aid. There's border stuff. There's probably spending packages. I wouldn't be surprised if the stablecoin bill slips into something like that. And that's just like a really good bill. Like it it is super reasonable for anything that you know has been invented before. You know it comes to pass. They're going to give it you know a study period. It just is like, there's a lot of things that are lining up in crypto's favor. 
the other thing I would say is 2024 is going to be a big transitional year. It feels like, you know, with the presidential election, with a lot of kind of the economic problems, like a lot of things are going to come to a head at some point in the next year. Uh, so I think people have kind of been in this like it happens with presidents. You kind of get into this like groove of like, yep, they're still president. You're just kind of like moving along. But we're going to decide what the future of the country is for the next four years. And that's super exciting. But it also get people thinking about the future and, and what different shapes it can take. So I think it's I think it's positive. I think that the stable coin, stable coins also feel like one of the it's the least thorny areas of crypto to regulate. I feel like there are some very common sense things that you can do that would be super win win. There was a Nick Carter created this chart. Yep. So credit to Nick. But this was this was great. Um, it, basically, the idea is that stables create net new demand for U.S. Treasuries, because at this point, that's basically all that at least USD Circle and USDC is backed by. And I, I actually don't really know Tether, but I'm assuming Tether as well. And you can see stables are, you know, they're small, but they're the they're the 16th largest sovereign holder of treasuries ahead of some pretty, you know, yeah, some pretty heavy. Korea, hitters. Germany, Saudi Mexico. Arabia. I was, yeah. I was pretty surprised to see Saudi Arabia on there. Um, so, I mean, it's not this, this is such a wonderful narrative as we try to figure out who is going to buy all of our debt? And we just have this thing. Like, don't worry, we invented like the stable coin. And everyone, all, all retail globally wants to hold this stuff. Like, that's so perfect. Why are you trying to ban this? And it, and it like, you get the positive regulation, you get the ETF, you get Larry Fink saying crazy stuff on Fox News. 2024. Let's see. I'm very curious to see how the Bitcoin corner reacts to this because. In one sense, yeah, I, I feel like generally Bitcoiners are very positive on stable coins, probably because it's not another token that threatens Bitcoin. But I mean, this is in theory, we're importing into crypto the sort of the MO for why Bitcoin exists in the first place, which is US debt that's not theoretically sustainable. So I like, just to be clear, I'm super positive about this. I think this is a very good thing, but you're also kind of importing you know, from the Bitcoin frame of view, like this theoretically safe asset that isn't that safe because, you know, X, Y, and Z reasons. But I just be curious. I think, I think you think of it as like, you know, lily pads. It's like the currency of your country probably is worse than the US dollar, which you can then get to. And you can get then get to the US dollar to like some high quality, more sustainable crypto asset. We'll see. We'll see. It, the, yeah. Uh, also, also, Keep in mind, I, I'm you know looking at USDC or some of the other publicly announced uh, holdings reports. We're not talking about 30-year bonds that have gone down 48 percent in the last two years. We're we're talking about six-month, three-month T-bills. Very, very different. Yeah, yeah. I know this isn't a macro podcast, but the thing that's going on in the bond market right now is it's the worst sell-off in U.S. bonds in all of U.S. history right now. So that's inclusive of the Civil War. I mean, it's uh, nuts. Absolutely not drawdown. What? Why is that, Mike? Why is that? The, I mean, I'm not a like a bond math person, but there's there's an element of convexity, which is basically like the lower that you draw down yields on bonds when they move up, there the basically the difference in terms of the overall price of the bond is going to be very different if you're moving from a zero percent interest rate to 0.5 percent interest rate than from like five to six, even though it's a smaller amount, the face price of the bond falls more. And we had like record issuance 
of very long dated debt at super low yields, like basically 0% coupons. And then we jacked interest rates up. And what's been happening is the long end of the curve is what's moving up right now. And that's where everyone's financed. So so here I saw Andre tweet this week. If you would have bought the 30-year treasury bill bond uh, on December 31st, 2021, and you bought Bitcoin on the same day, guess what is worth more right now? Bitcoin. Bitcoin never goes down. <laughs> <laughs> Remember when Palm used to tweet that when like servers servers are AWS to go down, like, never goes down. Not helpful, but it is true. Like, I mean, the people who are having the worst time are the people who are heavily rewarded for making two to three percent per year, but heavily punished for losing any sort of money. And those are all the pawn people. So, can I make can I make like a suggested listening for the pod? So Jeff yeah. Gunlack, yeah. Michael sent me, sent me this presentation, did a wonderful uh, grant. So Grant's interest rate observer, kind of like the archaeologist of interest rates and financial markets. And he gave like a 40th anniversary yeah. of uh, interest rate presentation about the US and debt and the deficit and where interest rates are and where they might go. And it is just like <laughs> the most thorough debunking of the idea that we can print all the money we want. And it's refuted just by simple math that you can do on a napkin. But I mean, the basic point is like stocks, n not a great idea. Bonds, not a great idea. You know, like there's certain things like tips, which will probably get like outlawed in his opinion. Um, there's very few investable things that have, you know, correlation to the basement of the money supply. And uh, he, does, he, he, does, he hates Bitcoin <laughs> unequivocally, but uh, he, he kind of makes the argument yeah. for it without really understanding. So I thought that was cool. I, I don't know. I don't know how much I actually really believe this, but just as a theory for because there are really smart people out there who say the the deficit doesn't matter ultimately in the long term because the US can print money. And my theory about there there are really smart people, right? So like when really when you know, no name people on Twitter say that it doesn't matter, I disregard that. But when very smart people, I'm I just like try to understand where they're coming from. And I think what it actually is, is a rooted bias. I try to imagine if like I was 60 years old and I had a bunch of interests in this TradFi system that was propped up by this unsustainable thing, I wouldn't want them to pull the rug out now, but I, that's not my position. This is like market forces. This is, this is all this is. It's more supply than demand for various instruments that the government's trying to issue. Totally. But you at some, at some point, one of two things needs to happen. Either you need to like you need to normalize it in one way or the other. You need to inflate everything to such a, you need to basically run inflation hot and interest rates slightly under that so that you normalize like GDP relative to debt. Or you just say, hey, this has gotten way out of whack and you try to you know pull the rug. And uh, it, that's it has to be through inflation or deflation that you do a reset here. And that's if I was if I was a sixty five year old and I had a bunch of tradfi assets, I would not want them to do so, the second thing. I'd want so them to do the say, first. Like you say, reset. I mean, I mean like the, the, those people are not dictating the future of like what we're going to live through. I think your point is similar to mine, which is like there's these various points in history, like World War Two, you know, the, the invention of the printing press, like where you have to rethink like how institutions are built and and rebuild them in and of themselves, and like. You know, Jeff Gunlack's classic example is he he's a guy that wants to abolish the Fed. 
and replace it with the two-year treasury. It's kind of like a weird idea. Uh, and it doesn't give them any levers to like increase or dramatically decrease the monetary supply. But like, that's the whole point. It's like, does it really make sense for them to set the price of money? Does it really make sense for them to buy or sell bonds or, or have a balance sheet to do, you know, whatever they want to do with versus something like, you know, uh, like honestly, like an ETH or a Bitcoin where it's like, you can, you know, the rules, the system's not indebted. Like this is a different thing. And, uh, I, I, yeah, I mean, Stan Druckenmiller and him are saying basically the same thing. Like at some point, you have to add those perspectives up and it means something. And it's like always a shitty idea to call for the end of the world. It's never like profitable. It just takes like long, much longer than you think to happen. But uh, these are going to be the narratives that are in the backdrop. And it, it may not, you know, there may not be a collapse in our lifetime, but people are going to be really worried about this. Um, especially as like things like the tenure just keep nuking and yields go higher. That doesn't help. I think the Bitcoiners would hate this idea, but I do think, ETH's monetary policy, the flexibility is like slightly better if there's going to be a money because actually like a totally static demand profile for money is like not actually great. You kind of want it to be, I think, dynamic, but rules based. I don't, to be honest, like I don't 100% have a grasp on ETH's monetary policy, but you know, it's kind of, I do think the government largely gets it right. It's like when there's a bad economic time, you want to stimulate a little bit. When there's a, there's a good economic time, you want to pull the reins back and create stability. But the the, pro the problem is it should just be rules-based and it should be an equation like the Taylor equation instead of like succumbing to panic, um, right? And just like eight people. I, I think of it as like lighter or heavier. You know? you know, heavier assets over time will sink. Lighter assets will rise. You know, what are what are the functions of being something being light? You know, having very little new supply issuance, having a strong holder base, having some sort of buyback. That's more in like TradFi not having four sellers that have, you know, fixed costs to generate your, your coin and your security. Like those are the, those are the things that like a good money has. And Charlie Noyce put out a tweet, I think two weeks ago, that was like, you know, there's a chance that ETH is like terminally, like slightly positive in inflation. And that's like, like the goal is not to delete all of the supply. The goal is to make the most sustainable internet money that you can over decades and assume that, that the lightness of that asset will propel it past heavier assets. It's exactly what you're seeing with alts right now. There's just so much supply. Like the examples only work in the extreme where it's like, if you had all the supply in the world of an alt today, it would, it would, it would dump, it would be heavier. Uh, but like, you know, if you think about it in the 10, 20, 30 year increments, like how much does proof of work actually cost versus proof of stake? Is it enough to tip the balances? It's one of many factors, but I do think, you know, your point is probably right. It's it's just like a, a much lighter monetary supply engine. I thought you actually had the tweet of the week, by the way, which was this the idea of it's like, hell, yes, I did. It was it was the point that you brought up about um, millennials and Zoomers not being able to afford a house and the link between that and uh, like basically yoloing into meme coins and meme stocks and all that stuff. I just think I do think that's like the key point, like making all this stuff unaffordable means that you just need to like, all right, I don't I'm not going to have all the stuff my parents had. So I'm just going to YOLO into this thing that may go way up or may hit zero and like, you know, pull the slot machine type thing. See, I, I also thought Vance had the tweet of the week, but I would uh, actually point to one day you'll be so tired of winning. You'll say to me, Vance, please, please, Vance, can we can we just stop winning? Can we just take a break for a second? And then we'll all win some more. <laughs> oh, that was think, a good tweet too. I think there's, yeah, good there's tweet. reasons <laughs> to be jubilant. You know, I, I think I think we're the setup is is lovely, um, and yeah, 
we'll see. I'm just looking at my own tweet. It's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> that feels like yeah. a good place to wrap. Yeah, we can wrap it up. All right, guys. 